How many of you guys, I'm curious, were here last week? Yeah, most of you. Uh, I, I wanted to say I appreciated uh, uh, some of you talk with me and uh, communicated with me about uh, what I shared last week. Uh, I hadn't told that story in a long time. And, and driving home last week, I was thinking to myself, um, I'm, you all right there? Now, the numbers are for your kids. I don't know what we do for your dog. We got some Alpo somewhere. What do you got? Is that you back there? What do you got? One of those little, uh, what do you call those suckers? Mistakes? What is that? Oh, look at that little thing. Isn't that great? <laughs> yeah, guide dog. I thought it was one of those real little tiny uh, white ones. Yeah, Pekingese. Uh, no, I don't want those. Aren't dogs? Those are. <laughs> anyway, but so many of you guys. I I, I I was driving back and I was thinking to myself, you, you know, the last time I told this, it probably been five, six, seven years, and I because I I was saying to myself, I'll, I'll never tell that story again because it's depressing to tell the story. But I appreciate your comments, because uh, those are the chapters we all walk through, and we all go through from time to time. Are you ever going to tell how you came out of that? How I came out of it? I'm still depressed. I've been depressed for... <laughs> I've been depressed basically since 1982, so... <laughs> I'm hoping to come out of it. I mean, they, they tell me it'll happen, and... Um, yeah, I'll tell you sometime. It, uh, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. That'll be part two. <laughs> but uh, we, we, won't, we won't hit that tonight. But let's go to the Lord tonight because we're going to continue in our study on, on kings. And uh, uh, we, we've, got a, we've got a guy tonight who, who, whose life is tragic, but... Um, he, he is a guy that I think uh, gives more hope than, more than any other man I can think of in, in the Old Testament, his life, and it's Manasseh. So let's pray together. Father, when we uh, are, are young and in our teenage years and in our 20s, we're looking ahead to life, and we uh, we're optimistic as we should be, and we have dreams, and we have uh, goals, and we have things we want to accomplish, and we're ready to take on life. Uh, we're full of energy, and we're ambitious, but because we're inexperienced, we have no idea what's waiting for us uh, through the various chapters of our lives, and sometimes those chapters are uh, are devastating, and sometimes they break our hearts. Uh, sometimes, Lord, our dreams are dashed uh, to the point where we lose all hope, and we think we're finished, and we think we're done, and we think that uh, we have failed to such an extent that uh, the rest of our days, all we will do is just breathe, but we won't contribute. Uh, many of us in this room have felt that, and we've experienced it through different kinds of circumstances. 
But uh, the emotions and the feelings and the disappointment uh, are, are all the same from whatever the experience might be that brings it into our lives. As we look at the scriptures, Lord, we understand that you are sovereign over those events. David said, it it was good for me that I was afflicted, because now I keep thy law. Lord, we learn through those hard times, and we find you. Many of us in this room came to know you because life fell apart. Uh, You mature us as men. Uh, You deepen us, and uh, you you make steel in our hearts and in our souls, Uh, tempered steel that uh, has great strength, but also has flexibility to it. And that doesn't come, we're not born with that, and we don't have that in our teenage years or in our 20s. That's a very, very long process that involves a lot of heat and a lot of fire and a lot of pain. We thank you, Lord, that you oversee that process in our lives. We thank you that none of us suffer by chance. We thank you, Lord, that any hardship or difficulty that comes into our lives comes with a purpose, and that hardship and that trial has a beginning, and it has a middle, and it has an end. Uh, You are sovereign over every event, over every chapter of our lives. We've got guys here in different places uh, on the trail of life. Some of us, Lord, uh, we can't buy a break. Everything we touch turns to disappointment. We pray for those men tonight that you would give them hope and encouragement. Not a temporary hope, but one that is lasting because it comes from your word. Uh, we, We pray for the guys that are doing well. We pray for the guys who are enjoying some success and some prosperity and some ease. We pray for them, Lord, that you will keep them alert. Because when things are going that well, we are particularly vulnerable to the subtle attacks of the enemy. We saw that last week with with Hezekiah and what happened to him during his period of prosperity. He got proud. So, Lord, we ask you to... Work in each of our hearts, Lord. Th- thank you that you don't, uh, you're not an HMO. We, we don't walk in and see somebody we don't know and they just hand us a prescription and there's no care. You're the great physician. You know every guy, you know every need, you know every affliction, you know every ailment, you know every heartache, you know every circumstance. You know all about us and you know what we need. So give us what we need tonight. We don't even know what we need, except that we need you and we need your word. So we'll ask you to work tonight. We'll ask you to teach us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A microscope and a telescope are both valuable instruments. With the microscope, obviously, you can look very, very closely and see details that you normally wouldn't see on the surface. Uh, A telescope is the opposite. Uh, A telescope enables you not to look close. A telescope enables you to look far. And as we're doing this study on the kings, 
we would be uh, foolish not to use both instruments. Uh, when we look at these kings and we look at their individual lives and we look at their biographies, we, we, we want to use a microscope and we want to get close to these guys. I, I, I think it's during the Olympics and I think it maybe goes back even to wide world of sports and Jim McKay, that comes into my mind, that during the Olympics they would do these short interviews uh, when there were no events to go to that they had pre-taped with certain athletes and they would call it up close and personal. And you'd have a chance to to hear McKay talk with, uh, uh, you know, some shot putter or some, you know, figure skater or something. You get the microscope on this guy and you find out what his life's like and where he lives and his family situation. And you guys know what I'm talking about. That's what we've been doing with these kings. But as we're looking at these kings... Uh, they're all connected, and they're in a family, and there are generations, um, just as you have a family, and there are generations in your family. You have a grandfather and a grandfather, a great-grandfather, and so on up the line. Now, you may not know much about your family history. Uh, you may only know two or, th- two or three generations, but nevertheless, you are linked There is a family chain that you are a part of. And uh, your family chain goes back all the way to Adam. Your family chain, you're the latest in in the chain unless you have children. Your children are links in the chain. One day you're going to be dead and gone, and then they're going to have children. Until Christ returns, this family link, uh, and that's all it is. You and your wife, you're a link. You're one link. In a very, very long chain. Um, so when we look at a guy like we will tonight, Manasseh, we look at his life, we're going to get up close with the microscope. But uh, you, you also have got to use uh, the telescope to get the big view, to get the big picture. Because he's part of a generation um, of men and a generation of family and a generation of, of kings. Uh, this guy's life is an interesting life. Uh, and, and the whole story of the two nations, of Israel and Judah, you know, 1 Corinthians 10 says of the Old Testament, and in reference to the nation of Israel, it says this. It says, these things were written for our instruction. Uh, that, that Old Testament and the story of the kings, and the story of of the lives of these men. There are lessons to be learned by us uh, out of their experiences. And and not only from each man individually, but their story corporately. Because they were the leaders of a nation. You have the northern kingdom, you have the the southern kingdom. Um, I've said this before, but it's true. Hegel, the philosopher, said, History teaches us that men never learn from history. If you want to know what's going to happen in the future, then you look to the past. Someone has said that a historian is a prophet in reverse. There's no secret to that. Uh, Chuck mentioned it a few weeks ago uh, in his study on Revelation, that it is somewhat perplexing that as you look in biblical prophecy and you read Revelation, 
you can identify certain nations, but we can't find the United States of America. Uh, Why can't we? Because we're not there. Yet today, we're the big boys on the block. Well, the question is, well, what happens to us? And the answer is, nobody knows. But a pretty good hint would be looking at what happened to the nation of Israel. What happened to them? Because you see, it's just not the nation of Israel. Uh, When you look at world history, there are 24 or 25 great civilizations that exist no more. They tend to go through five phases, nations do. Uh, You have your initial growth of a nation. Then you have rapid expansion and prosperity. That's number two. Then number three, you have a stage that you might call preservation of gains made, where they're trying to hold on to what they've got. Then the fourth phase would be uh, um, moral deterioration. And then the fifth phase would be uh, collapse and ruin. Now, on, on that orbit of five different stages, where would you see us as a nation? I hear number four is what I hear. And, and, and it's all around us. All around us. Uh, back in 1975, Cleela Rorex was a clerk in Boulder County, Colorado. And they went through a phase back then where they were experimenting with granting marriage licenses to same-sex couples. They granted six of them. She finally stopped, according to Marvin Olasky, she finally stopped after the state attorney general issued an opinion that marriage is a union between a man and a woman. The next day, a man came in wanting to marry his horse. True story. Ms. Rorex looked at the man and said, how old is the horse? Three years old. She replied, the horse is too young to get married without parental consent. (laughs) The man walked out. Now, that's funny, but more than funny, it's tragic. Now, how many, in 75 They granted six marriage licenses to same-sex couples. 30 years later, how many have been granted in the last few days? Hundreds, hundreds, hundreds. Um, Why is that? Because there's a slide. When we look at the life of Manasseh, we're going to do in a minute, what we're going to see in his life is we're going to see a slide. Not a slide upward, a slide downward. When you look at nations, you see a slide not upward, you see a slide downward. This is where we are. We're in phase four, uh, and we all know it, of, of moral degeneracy. Uh, we're falling apart. We're, we're, we're losing our bearings. We're losing our reference point. We're losing the truth that caused God to bless us. That's just where we are. How long? What, I don't know, but I will tell you this. I, I am amazed at the speed and the acceleration that has happened even since the spring on the issue of homosexuality in the media. 
It just, it, it, it was here and there in bits and pieces. And since the spring, it has just proliferated. Uh, the, the accelerator has been stepped on. And things are moving uh, at an amazingly rapid pace, exponentially. Uh, the downward slide we're watching before our eyes. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Second Chronicles 33, but on your way there, go to 2 Kings 21. Let's start with 2 Kings 21 as we look at Manasseh tonight. The scriptures say here in 2 Kings 21 that Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. Now, if you back up to the previous verse in 2 Kings 20, verse 21, it says, So Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and Manasseh, his son, became king in his place. So Manasseh, he's the son of the man whom we looked at last week. And we tried to cram in a lot last week on, on Hezekiah. And we caught a snapshot of Hezekiah when uh, God had healed him of a terminal illness. God had delivered them from the Assyrian army uh, in a miraculous way. And what happened was uh, the wealth and prosperity that came his way, it made his heart proud. And when the delegates came from another country, he showed them everything that he had. He didn't withhold anything because there was pride in his heart. Now, here's what's interesting about Hezekiah. And we could have walked out here last week thinking, well, you know, that guy was a real loser. Hezekiah was a godly man. Uh, he was one of the good kings. But what we saw last week was a snapshot of his life where in the midst of his prosperity, he became proud. Now, that has happened to you and it's happened to me. When things go our way, uh, as the old hymn says, we're prone to wander. We're prone to leave the God that we love. That's why we can't take too much blessing at the same time. We just can't. Because what happens is it throws us off spiritually. Because we're just men and we're, we're but dust. And God oversees how it is that he blesses us. He dispenses his favor. And, and, and we've all received his favor. But as I said last week, sometimes we get disappointed because we think that God should do more for us than he's doing. God is a good father, and he's a wise father. And sometimes he withholds things because what he's trying to do is develop character in our lives. Uh, Hezekiah had a lot, and his inner character did not keep pace with what he enjoyed as a king. And so he had a time in his life where he got proud. Now, he made a correction, and he was buried with honor because... He was a godly man. He loved the Lord. Uh, we're going to have bouts like that. We're going to have episodes like that. He had a son by the name of Manasseh. Manasseh, his son, was the wickedest king in the history of Judah. Uh, right up there with Hezekiah's... Now, follow me here. He's right up there with Hezekiah's father. Hezekiah was sandwiched between a wicked father and a wicked son. Uh, those two pieces of uh, family bread were nick and neck for the two worst kings in the history 
uh, of Judah. That's just, that's just how it works. It, it's, it's an amazing thing how, how families change from generation to generation. Um, so we look, at, we look at Manasseh, and as it says right out of the blocks, he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. This guy who was a wicked king had a long run. A re- there were no term limits back then. Uh, there were no primaries. There were no caucuses. Uh, you were king. You were king for the duration. Look at verse 2 of 2 Kings 21. It says, And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. Now, I need to say something before we go any further here. If you guys have been in this study for a while, we looked at Manasseh about a year and a half ago. And I debated about not, not looking at him tonight because some of you guys were here when we studied his life before. But, but I think this guy's life is so unique, it bears repeating. He's worth another look. There, there are some movies you want to see twice. There are some books you want to read twice. There are some lives you want to look at twice. And this guy is one of them. Uh, some guys start strong. Manasseh didn't finish. He didn't start strong. He, he started poorly. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. And this is an interesting phrase. According. Did you catch that in verse 2? Accord, how much evil did he did? Well, it was according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. What is that about? Well, the nations that the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel were the Canaanite nations. When they went in the promised land, you had all the ites, the Canaanites, the Amalekites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, all of these highly advanced civilizations that were unbelievably ungodly and immoral, highly educated, but shot through with venereal disease. Manasseh equaled them in his evil, although he had a godly upbringing. It goes on, and it's, and it's going to describe for us what this guy did. In verse 3, it says, For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. That's a sad statement. That's a tragic statement. Uh, the apostle John said, I have no greater joy than this than to see my children walking in the truth. I, I think the opposite is also true. There's no greater heartache than to see your children not walking in the truth. Especially when you've raised them uh, to know the truth. I've been reading an interesting book this week. Uh, It's called God and Ronald Reagan, A Spiritual Life by Paul Kingor. And as you can see, I got 20% off on it by the red label here. I'm, I'm very pleased with that. Um, th- this, is, this is an excellent book. Uh, this uh, Kingor guy is a professor at Grove City College, and uh, it's well written. I, I, I learned things about Reagan I've ne- I, that I didn't know. I learned things about Reagan when he made his visit to the Soviet Union. Uh, I learned things about his speeches and the content of his speeches that were not reported in the American newspapers. Uh, Allusions to Jesus Christ. 
uh, to the Garden of Gethsemane, to the Prince of Peace, when he stood in the Politburo with all the top brass of communist atheism and held up his glass and toasted them and said, God bless you. And as the Bible would say, their countenance changed. <laughs> that's just a little, that's a little shot. Uh, Ronald Reagan had a godly mother. Father was an alcoholic, had never done well in business. But he had a mother who was committed to Christ, and a mother, her name was Nell, and she was a, she was a woman of prayer and a woman of the scriptures. Um, She had an amazing influence on his life. Now, he doesn't, and, and I know there are things and questions that, that don't fit perfectly into our uh, pigeonholes. I think that's true with Mel Gibson for some of us. Uh, but nevertheless, God's at work in Gibson's life. He was at work in Reagan's life. Um, something I read that, I, that, I, that really struck me. Um, let's see if I can find it here. I'm really hoping I can find it because I've got this book. Here it is. Um, Reagan, as you know, uh, was an actor, um, but through some unique circumstances, part of which, uh, back in the 50s, he realized the threat of communism in Hollywood had threats in his own life to the point that the FBI ordered him to carry a gun for three years. That's how serious it was. Uh, got into politics, was elected. Uh, before moving to the governor's mansion, Reagan attended the Bel Air Presbyterian Church, which he joined after his marriage to Nancy. One Sunday morning, as his family was getting ready for church, Reagan found that his young son, Ron, was lingering in his room. Reagan walked in to check on him, only to find his son dressed in blue jeans and a t-shirt. He asked his boy why he wasn't wearing a suit. I'm not going, his son said defiantly. I don't believe it, and I'm not going. Some 40 years later, Ron Reagan, the son, recounted the incident. He said of his father, that bothered him for a long, long time. I don't think it ever stopped bothering him. It was one of the things that disturbed him more than anything else. The writer goes on and says, Reagan was very concerned over whether Ron, as well as his sister Patty, were Christians. I wish they would accept Christ, he more than once told his son Michael. One evening years later, during a family dinner in Washington in 1984, Shortly before Patty married, Reagan grabbed Michael's hand and whispered, I wish that Patty would accept Christ. Now, you know something about their relationship. Uh, she was a, a, a wild child. But, but you know, it's fa and in rebellion, absolute rebellion. What's interesting is just a few years ago, uh, she wrote a book about the faith of her father. And now as she has gotten older, the difference his faith has made in her life. I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. There's no greater heartbreak than to see your children not work, walking in the truth. Uh, Hezekiah 
had to be heartbroken over the rebellion of his son because you know that he sought. Then he died. His son continued. Uh, he would have been devastated if he had have seen the downward spiral that took place in the life of his son. It's tracked for us right here in 2 Kings. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. Uh, what was going on in the high places? They were worshiping false gods. Hezekiah tore them down. Manasseh rebuilt them. And he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah, a, a, a female deity, uh, 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 the worship of sexual perversion. you got to understand something, guys, about Baal worship. And we've talked about this in here before. But Baal worship is alive and well in America today. Uh, we just don't call it Baal worship. Um, there are three, three hallmarks of Baal worship in the Old Testament. Uh, Baal worship was pro-gay rights. Uh, Baal was a false god. They had all these myths about Baal. All of the stories were sexual in nature. For instance, Baal killed his own father and castrated his father. Baal had uh, two or three sisters. I don't remember which, to be honest with you. But he had intercourse with each of his sisters. And then it goes on from there, things you can't even mention. But all the stories were sexual. And when they would worship Baal, they would reenact the stories and myths of Baal publicly, and the priest would reenact the stories, uh, which required them to be prostitutes, the priest. The Baal priest, there were three kinds of prostitutes that comprised the priesthood. There were male prostitutes, female prostitutes, and sodomite prostitutes because they needed all three to cover the realm of sexual perversion and, and the acts of sexual immorality that were displayed in public. Um, oh, if you stood up against that and said it was wrong, you were accused of being hateful and intolerant. G.K. Chesterton once said that tolerance is the virtue of people who don't believe in anything. Did you get that? Because that was really good. Let me get that to you again. Tolerance is the virtue of people who don't believe in anything. Boy, that describes our culture to a T, doesn't it? So you couldn't speak out against homosexuality because, well, that, that's just not acceptable, you see. Now, let's say this about homosexuality. Homosexuality is sin just as heterosexual adultery is sin. God invented sex. God came up with it. Hugh Hefner didn't. God's the one who came up with sex. Um, but God says that sex is for a man and a woman who are married, period. That's it. So anything outside of that is sin and is immoral and is evil. I was reading a couple weeks ago about the amount of medical research dollars Um, what is funded double more than second place is AIDS research. 
Um, you know, there's a way to stop AIDS. And the way you stop AIDS is, is that, well, you know how to stop AIDS, don't you? See, it's really, and I'm going to tell you something. That didn't take much research. I remember when I was driving down Denton Tap Road in Coppell with my boys, taking them to school. And it came on the radio that Magic Johnson had AIDS. And I remember Joshy in the back seat. He was shocked. And he said, Dad. I mean, he was asking all kinds of questions. He said, Dad, could I get AIDS? I said, Josh, let me tell you some real good news. If you do what Jesus says, and you don't have sex with anyone other than your wife, you know what's great? You can't get AIDS. Now, some people get it through a blood transfusion. That's possible. But that's minuscule. For the most part, we can say that if you follow what Jesus says, you don't have sex until you get married. And when you get married, you don't ever have sex with anybody else other than your wife. You'll never get AIDS. That's pretty good, isn't it? He said, Dad, that's great. I said, I think it's great. Takes all the worry out of it. I said, if Magic Johnson had done that, he wouldn't be fighting this stuff right now, you see? And you know what it did? It just gave Josh, who was probably eight years old, it just gave him a real sense of calm. And it just quieted his heart and took away his anxiety. You know, I've noticed that when I do what Jesus says, it kind of ratchets down the anxiety. Have you noticed that? This stuff, uh, it's just how it works, guys. It goes on and it says here, oh, wait a minute. I've got to give you the other two on Baal worship. They were, they were pro-gay rights. And listen, here's the thing about homosexuality. Some of you guys in here have struggled with homosexuality. That's a fathering issue. That's what homosexuality is. There's not a shred of evidence, not a shred, that homosexuality is genetic. Now you say, well, there's the hypothalamus study and there's the twin study. Well, quite frankly, those were done by gay activists. And uh, if, if your son or daughter did a research paper using their research methods, they would have flunked them out of school. It's not genetic. It, it, it comes from a family situation where a father is either extremely dominant and hard and harsh and uncaring and unloving, or, or the father is passive and the mother is dominant and in charge and in control, and there's role reversal in the family. That's how, that's how it works. Um, So are we against homosexuals? No. Paul said to the church at Corinth, he talked about the fact that some of you were idolaters and some of you were fornicators and some of you were homosexuals and some of you were thieves, you see? Um, and none of those will enter the kingdom of God. And then he said, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. See, Christ comes into our lives and he changes us and he forgives us he sets us on a new course. Two other traits of uh, Baal worship. 
they were pro-environment. They believed, now I'm all for clean rivers and all that jazz, and so are you. But you can go crazy on that stuff, uh, which is what we're seeing today. Um, I, I found it interesting this week that, you know, there's this latest hubbub on the Atkins diet and this group of doctors. Well, it turns out those doctors basically are the guys who are the spokespersons for uh, PETA, you see. The, what is that outfit? Animal, yeah. Ethical, ethical treatment of animals. And you know what? And we're to treat animals, we're, we're to care for animals. Uh, so they, they found an animal, they found a dog in Fort Worth today that had been skinned alive. That's a horrible thing. That's wrong. Uh, but this all has to be kept in perspective. When, when Ahab and Jezebel thought they were running uh, Israel, they were Baal worshipers, and this guy Elijah shows up, and the first thing he says to him is, it won't rain until God says it will rain. And it didn't rain for three and a half years. That was a direct slap in the face of Baal because they thought Baal controlled the rain. They thought Baal controlled the environment, and he doesn't. Yahweh controls it. Uh, so all this pro-environmental stuff, uh, I, I was reading in the past week about the forest that are owned by the federal government and the forests that are owned by private companies, the lumber companies, like Weyerhaeuser and Georgia Pacific. You, you know what's interesting? The, the forests that are owned by private companies don't have the fires that you have in the forest owned by the fo federal government. Now, why would that be? Yeah, it, it, it's, called, uh, it's called common sense. It's called brains. It's called using your head. Uh, God told Adam that he had dominion over the earth and he was to subdue it. So you see what they do, those private companies is, they, um, they, they trim brush, they cut brush, they manage a forest. But when you get crazy and when you get nuts and when you start worshiping the creature rather than the creator, you can't pull a weed out of there and you can't thin any, you know what I'm talking about, so you get fires. And the amount of firefighters that were killed last year in those forest fires were in double digits. Now, some of those men lost their lives because somebody's got a screwed up idea about the environment. See, ideas have consequences. That making any sense to you guys? Okay. Uh, environmentalism is a spiritual issue. What's the third one? Oh, Baal worshipers were pro-choice. They would, uh, in their worship of Baal, they would take newborn infants and throw them into the hands of a white-hot god, an idol, and the baby would be immolated before the father's eyes. We're going to see in a minute, Manasseh did that. They would take the lives of innocent children. You wanted to show your allegiance to Baal Moloch? You put your little son, you put your little daughter in the hands of this god, and you watch the skin rip off their body, and they, it's a hor that's a horrible thing. Well, thank God we don't take the lives of children today. Oh, yeah, we do. Sure we do. And can I say something to you guys? You be careful who you vote for. So you vote for somebody. See, maybe you're personally opposed to that. Well, then be man enough to stand on your principles. 
So why would you vote for somebody who's not opposed to that? You see? Because if you're, if you're voting for someone consistently that takes that position, quite frankly, you're an accessory to what they're doing. That's a spiritual issue. doesn't stop there with old uh, Manasseh. Look again at verse 3. He erected altars for Baal, made an Asherah, as Ahab king of Israel had done. He worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. Instead of worshipping the creator, he worships the stars. <clears throat> Look at verse 4. And he built altars in the house of the Lord. Not altars to the Lord, altars to false gods. Uh, verse 5. For he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. So he built, he, he, put, he put a phallic symbol in the holy of holies and worshipped it. If you can imagine such a thing. You talk, about a, you talk about a downward slide. Verse 6, and he made his son pass through the fire. He practiced witchcraft and used divination. And he dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Then he set the carved image of Asherah, this this horrible image, in the house of which the Lord had said to David and to his son Solomon, in this house in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all the tribes of Israel, I'll put my name forever. Uh, look at verse 9. It says, but they did not listen, and Manasseh seduced them to do evil more than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. Now, you, you, see, you see what's happened here? It starts off by saying, Manasseh, did evil according to the nations which the Lord drove out from Israel. Now what's happened, the downward slide is to such an extent that they have surpassed what the nations, they've surpassed what the Canaanites did. And this guy is part of Israel slash Judah. He comes from a godly line. Manasseh seduced them to do evil more than the nations whom the Lord destroyed. Look at verse 10. Now the Lord spoke through his servants, the prophets, saying, and we've said this before, every king that we've studied, every king, there was a prophet for every king. These prophets weren't Democrats and they weren't Republicans. Uh, these guys just work for the Lord. Uh, they, tended to have their, um, they tended to have short lifespans. Uh, they didn't have a lot of money in their retirement accounts. And the benefits weren't real good other than eternal life. But their job was to tell the truth, period, and they did it. The Lord spoke through his servants, the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, having done wickedly more than all the Amorites did who were before him. And he's also made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I'm going to bring such a calamity on Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both his ears shall tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. That's, an, that's quite a picture. In other words, God is going to judge this sin. He's going to judge the sin of Manasseh. He's going to judge the sin of the people. Um... Look at verse 14. I'll abandon the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hands of their enemies, and they shall become as plunder and spoil to all their enemies, because they've done evil in my sight and have been provoking me to anger. 
since the days their fathers came from Egypt, even to this day. Look at 16. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. There is a tradition that it was Manasseh who took the prophet Isaiah and put him in a hollowed-out log and had him sawn in two. That's not in the Scriptures, but there's a Jewish tradition that assigns that to Manasseh. Verse 17. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and the sins which he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his own house in the garden of Uzzah, and Amon his son became king in his place. End of story. So this guy got away with murder. Not quite. As Paul Harvey would say, and now, the rest of the story. Why don't you flip over to uh, 2 Chronicles 33. We get a significant addition in Chronicles to the life of Manasseh. It appears that this guy just lived like hell and destroyed the nation and lived a long life and died and that was it. In, in 2 Chronicles 33, verses 1 through 9 are identical basically with what we just read in Kings. But look at verse 10. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Here's what happened, guys. It, it, this is what happened to Manasseh, and this is what happens to us. When we willfully disobey the word of God, God lets us know, and God speaks to us. God convicts us. He convicts us through the Spirit of God and through the Word of God. You know this to be true in your life. I know it to be true in my life. When, when, when we cross, when we are disobedient, God speaks to our hearts. He, he flicks that nerve of conscience, and we know that we're in sin. We know it. Uh, Manasseh refused to listen to the conviction of the Spirit of God, and so he continued, and he continued, and he continued. And, and God, you know what God does? God continues to convict. God continues. But when we refuse to bow the knee to God, what happens is, is that our hearts become hardened. Our hearts and our consciences become calloused uh, to the things of the Lord. See, that's happening to us. That happens to individuals, and that happens to us as, um, it happens to us as nations. <clears throat> A few weeks ago, I read this book, The Faith of George W. Bush by Stephen Mansfield. This is a good book, too. There are some good books out there. Um, the section right off the bat, he doesn't talk right off the bat about George W. Bush. He talks about, um, of course, his father, and then he talks about uh, his grandfather, Prescott Bush, who was a United States senator. Some of you guys will remember this. Uh, he was talking about the kind of man that Prescott Bush was. Um, I'll pick it up here in this paragraph. It was the moral fire of Prescott Bush that left its strongest impression on his sons and grandsons. He was a wealthy man. He was a senator. He was uh, well-connected. Guy had a lot of privilege. He had a lot of prosperity. He had a lot of things go his way. But there was a moral fire in this man. Uh, Jeb Bush once described his grandfather as a stern, righteous man, and he was. Friends called him a Ten Commandments man. I like that. Ten Commandments guy, Prescott Bush. He insisted on ties and jackets at meals. That's not in the Ten Commandments. <laughs> he expected his family to call him senator. That's not in there either. 
and he demanded athletic excellence of everyone, even his wife. He should have lived in North Dallas. He would have been fine in this day and age. Yet for all of this rugged authoritarianism, his moral sense and Christian, and Christian faith left the deepest mark. One example is particularly important, not only for the ethical passion it reveals, but also because Prescott's grandson was a witness and the lesson never left him. It took place the summer of George W.'s junior year at Andover. Prescott Bush had been invited to speak at the graduation of the Rosemary Halls Girls School in Greenwich, Connecticut. The audience certainly expected the usual senatorial graduation speech. But Prescott was in no mood for a polite little talk. He had been inflamed by the conduct of New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller, who was running for president at the time. How many of you guys remember this? Yeah, you old guys. Good to have you here. We're glad you're here. We're glad you're breathing. We're glad they let you out of the home this evening to come and join us. Some of you, I remember this. I was a kid. Rockefeller had divorced his wife of 32 years and married a recently divorced, much younger woman. Divorce under any circumstances was unusual for the time, but it was equally unusual for a U.S. senator to rebuke publicly a national figure at a commencement address. Prescott Bush spared Rockefeller nothing. Here's what he said. Excuse me, have we come to the point in our life as a nation where the governor of a great state, one who aspires perhaps to the nomination for president of the United States, can desert a good wife, mother of his grown children, divorce her, then persuade the mother of four youngsters to abandon her husband and their four children and marry the governor? Have we come to the point where one of the two great political parties will confer upon such a one its highest honor and greatest responsibility? I venture to hope not. It was an astonishing moment, and George W. never forgot it. He was sitting in the audience as his senator grandfather spoke, deeply moved by the older man's moral courage. That's refreshing. That's refreshing. Prescott Bush wouldn't believe what's going on today. And you know, quite frankly, I'm not hearing a lot of leaders speak out. I'm not hearing, and I, and the guy that's this pastor down at this uh, counterfeit church, this homosexual church, he's had something to say today, you know, defending this. I haven't heard anybody else speaking out. Um, I'll tell you something, this is wicked, and this is evil, and this is wrong, and it's lawlessness is what it is. Turn with me to Psalm 2. You guys still with me? Are you? Are any games on tonight? I don't know either. Psalm 2. Look at Psalm 2. Psalm 2 kind of describes what's going on in our nation and in other nations. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together, and the mayor of San Francisco makes his own law. That's in the Hebrew text. <laughs> Actually, I just made it up. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us, they say. This is great, verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. 
Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. See, everybody's got to decide who your king's going to be, you see. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance. And the very ends of the earth is thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt shatter them like earthenware. Look at verse 10. Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. He's talking to the politicians here. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. That kind of sets it straight, doesn't it? You know what? Jesus is still King of kings and Lord of lords, and the word of God is still supreme. And it's still true. How blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. You know what we're watching? You know, what, you know what's developing our nation? Is lawlessness. Lawlessness. One of the terms used for the Antichrist is that he is the man of lawlessness. Lawlessness is anti-God. Hmm. Let's go back to Manasseh. So, when I get away from the Lord, when I get into sin, is the Lord just going to let me go without drawing that to my attention and speaking to my heart? No, and he does the same thing to you. And if we're smart, what we'll do is we'll heed the voice and we'll listen and we'll confess our sin and we'll get back on the path of righteousness. Manasseh didn't do that. And when he didn't do it, it brought trouble on himself. When I don't do it, it brings trouble on me. When you don't do it, it brings trouble on you. What kind of trouble? Look at verse 11. Therefore the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them, and they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. They put a hook through this guy's nose and carry him off and put him in a, dabble, a Babylonian dungeon. And to, uh, when you put all the accounts together, he was there probably for close to 12 years. Isn't that interesting? This great king, this powerful king, killed the prophets, killed the prophets of God. Blood was all over Jerusalem. You know how many families, you know how many, you, you know how many families were robbed of their fathers by this guy? You know how much sexual sin took place? You know how many people were encouraged to walk away from the truth? This guy was wicked, and he refused to bow his head to the truth. He refused to bend the knee to the God that he knew was there, that he knew was there. I think we talked about this last week or the week before. You know, Romans 1 talks about the fact that every man, every person knows that God exists. We know it because he's written the truth of himself on our hearts. And secondly, we know it by observing creation. One of the things I enjoyed in this book about Reagan is when he made his visit to the Soviet Union and was interacting with Gorbachev and all these big wigs and these atheists and all these guys. Um, he was at different events and different receptions and making different speeches. And there was a reception at the United States ambassador's residence, and all these dignitaries and dissidents were there, and the top brass were there, and the reporters from Pravda. You don't hear much about Pravda anymore. Pravda was the newspaper in Russia. Remember that? I think most of those guys now are at the New York Times. But 
Anyway, he was addressing them. And at one point, he interrupted his address, and here's what he said. And here, Reagan said, I would like to speak to you not as a head of government, but as a man, a fellow human being, he told his audience. If I may, I want to give you one thought from my heart. Imagine all these Russian, all these communists, all these dignitaries, all these powerful men that had overseen the murder of millions of people. How many Jews did Hitler kill? Six million. Conservative estimates, according to Alexander Solzhenitsyn, is that over 60 million Russian people were slaughtered by the Bolsheviks, by Stalin. uh, Incomprehensible. If I may, I want to give one thought from my heart, he said to these men. Coming here, being with you, looking into your faces, I have to believe that the history of this troubled century will indeed be redeemed in the eyes of God and man, and that freedom will come to all. For what injustice can withstand your strength, and what can conquer your prayers? Well, these guys don't even pray. Now catch this. Could I play a little trick on you and say something that isn't written in my speech? Sometimes when I'm faced with an unbeliever, an atheist, I am tempted to invite him to the greatest gourmet dinner one could ever serve, and when we finished eating that magnificent dinner, to ask him if he believes there's a cook. (laughs) Thank you all, and God bless you. That is rich. That is rich. The writer says that is mindful of the story told of Johannes Kepler, the great astronomer of the 17th century. Kepler was a Christian, and he frequently argued with a colleague who was an atheist. And one day, he chose a creative method to convince his friend that there was a creator. Kepler constructed an elaborate, wondrous working model of the solar system, equipped with a sun encircled by rotating planets as well as moons moving around planets. When his unbelieving friend saw the model, he was amazed and asked, who made it? Nobody made it, said Kepler. It just happened. (laughs) Isn't that good? Who made this model? He went on and said, a strong wind must have come up one afternoon. And blown around a bunch of laboratory debris, dust, and other particles from outside. Somehow, this elaborate model is the result. Gosh. They know he's there. Can I tell you something? When Manasseh was in that dungeon, he knew God was there. He knew it. Some of you have kids that you've raised to know Christ, and they're away from Christ. And they're living like hell. They know he's there. They know it. They know Jesus is God. And they know the Bible is the word of God. They know it in their deepest part of their being. But everything within them is committed to deny. That was Manasseh. So God put him in a dungeon. And he was there for 12 years. And you know what happened? He repented. He repented. That's... You say, that can't be. Well, look at verse 12. It says, and when he was in distress, I'm in 2 Chronicles 33, and when he was in distress, he entreated the Lord his God, 
and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, he, God, was moved by his entreaty and heard his supplication. So you know what God did? This guy finally, isn't this amazing? And see, there have got to be some guys in here, and, and you've lost hope for a wayward son or a wayward daughter. Because their heart is so hard. They're so rebellious. There is, not, there is not an ounce of humility. There's not an ounce of acknowledgement of who God is. And quite frankly, it looks like they are lost, and they are lost for eternity, and the thing that you fight with is losing hope that they'll ever be saved. If this had been your son, that's how you would have felt. But God enclosed him, and finally... He acknowledged that God was God and surrendered his life to the Lord. But that's not all that happened. Look at verse 13. God was moved by his entreaty, heard his supplication, and brought him again to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. God not only forgave Manasseh, you know what God did? God pulled him out of that dungeon, took him back to Jerusalem, and put him on the throne. That's amazing. I'll be honest with you. First time I read that, it ticked me off. I'm mean, just being honest with you. I mean, I thought, you know, God, that's great. You forgave the guy and all that, you know, but, but, but then you put him on the throne. And you know, what, you know what Manasseh did for the rest of his days? Manasseh spent the rest of his days undoing the damage that he had done. That's what he did. What, what this guy did was he repented. To repent, every time you make a U-turn, you repent. You're going one direction. To repent is to turn and go the exact opposite direction. This man lived a life of debauchery. He lived a life of rebellion. He lived a life of sexual uh, uh, immorality, of astro- witchcraft. He was a murderer. Look at verse 14. From 14 down, it, it describes the repentance. What did John the Baptist say to the Pharisees? He said to them, bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. If someone repents, if someone says, I'm going to follow the Lord, you know what there's going to be? There's going to be fruit. That's what happens. Uh, there is a supreme need in our lives for fruit-bearing It's not what we do to earn God's forgiveness, but it demonstrates the fact that new life is within us. New life has come into my life. So there ought to be a change in attitude. There ought to be a change in in temper. There ought to be a change. And these things don't happen overnight, but there ought to be a growth. We grow up in Christ. And from 14 down, you're going to see what this guy did. He's bringing forth the fruit of his repentance. After this, he built the outer wall of the city of David on the west side of Gihon. Um, he circled the offal with it and made it very high. Why did he do that? To keep out the marauding armies who served the wrong gods. That's why he did it. Look at verse 15. He removed the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord, as well as the altars which he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside the city. And he set up the altar of the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it, 
and he ordered Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed in the high places, although only to the Lord their God. This is an amazing story. It's a story of the grace of God. It's a story of the forgiveness of God. You know, um, I got a question for you guys as we close this off. This is a wonderful story. Manasseh's forgiven. He, he's restored to his throne. Now, I got a question for you. And here's my question. Do you think, as the years went by, he'd been forgiven, he's now doing all these wonderful things and serving them. Do you think that Manasseh ever woke up in the middle of the night and thought about those men that he had killed? Do you think he ever thought about those prophets that, that he had cut their throats? Do you think he ever uh, thought about that child that he had sacrificed in the fire? You know he did. Uh, you know, in, in Revelation, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. We all have things in our lives, in our past, that we're ashamed of. We all have things we wish we could go back and change. We all have things we wish we could go back and, and undo them so that they never happen. But you know what? We can't do that. But here's the great thing about God. God not only forgives our sin, but God forgets our sin. In Hebrews, it says, your sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. That's wonderful. But what is it the enemy does? You're walking with the Lord now. You, you know, you got things in your past. I got things in my... And every once in a while, what the enemy will do is he'll try to paralyze you in the present to keep you from being effective and used by the Lord. He'll attempt to paralyze you by bringing up your past. How can you call yourself a Christian? Look at what you did. You hypocrite. Who are, you to, who are you to carry a Bible? And, and what he just accuses. And, and you know what? You're guilty. But the fact of the matter is, you're also forgiven. You're forgiven. And God has forgotten your sin. He's removed it, far, he's removed it from you as far as the east is from the west. Now, I can't explain that. But that's what he's done. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who wrote the Sherlock Holmes series was a great practical joker he was a very wealthy man and traveled in the highest circles of the aristocracy of England he thought it would be funny to send a telegram to 12 of his friends it was the it was and all 12 telegrams were identical the telegrams simply said all has been discovered. Flee at once. And within 24 hours, all 12 of those men had left England. Now, did he know what they were ashamed of? And did he know what they were hiding? No, he just knew human nature. We've all got skeletons in the closet. And that's what he knew to be true. I think there were times when Paul woke up in the middle of the night 
and thought about that day where he held the coats of those who murdered Stephen and the people he persecuted and the husbands he threw in jail and the families that he split up because the accuser of the brethren reminded him. Uh, the great news, guys, is that when Jesus went to the cross, he paid for all my sin. You remember that great hymn? Jesus paid it 90%. Let's stand and sing that together. Uh, Jesus didn't pay it 90%. Jesus paid it all. What's the one thing in your life you are most ashamed of? Well, Jesus paid for that. And not only did he pay for that sin, but when we throw ourselves on his mercy and his forgiveness, not only does he forgive us of that sin, he forgets that sin. And he's willing to restore us, and he's willing to use us. That's the great news of the gospel. And may I add something else that we've talked about before? He's got a work for you to do. And you can't die till you do it. Manasseh eventually slept with his fathers, but not until he had done the work. And what was his work? It was spending his life undoing the things he had done in his past. Let's pray together. Father, we can never hear uh, too much of grace. We'll never get enough of mercy. And every day, we need more. I'm reminded, Lord, that uh, Manasseh's name means forgotten. Because of what you did in his life, um, he could sleep at night. Because not only was he forgiven, but what he had done, you had removed from him as far as the east is from the west. So, Father, we come to you we listen to you tonight and we listen to your word. We don't listen to the accuser of the brethren. We thank you that Jesus is our defense attorney. We thank you when Satan accuses us that Jesus who represents us stands up before you and says, Father, this man belongs to me. I paid for his sin. So we, along with John Newton, thank you for your amazing grace. Now, Father, we have all tasted sin and we've all tasted the consequences. Help us this week to be wise and to learn from our errors and our mistakes. Help us to rebuild the outer wall of our lives this week. Help us, Lord, not to feed sin. Help us to starve it. Help us to be men that walk in your truth and walk in your light as you walk ahead of us. As, as our nation crumbles, as our nation becomes increasingly lawless, you're looking for men that will walk with you with their whole hearts. We desire to be those men. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.